Dear Lord, thank you so very much for this wonderful evening, for hearts that come together to love you and to listen for your voice. Lord, I ask that it's your voice that's heard tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, today I'm going to not really speak from my notes as much because of what we're going to do. So if I accidentally skip something and you see it on your handout, stop me and, and, and say something and say, well, what was that? You know, because otherwise other people who are listening online will get totally lost. So, so just you're kind of being their advocate. What I want you to do is get your Bibles out and turn to Genesis. We're not starting over. So don't worry. <laughs> so don't worry. <laughs> but but tonight we're going to actually make it all the way to Jeremiah. And in addition to kind of giving you the history and the, you know, the background of Jeremiah, I also want to make sure you understand the geography of the Bible itself. And so I want to just kind of flip through as we go through tonight so you see <coughs> how it hangs together and where the bits are. All right, so we started the first lesson in Genesis, and in Genesis you find Adam and Eve, right? You find their sons, Cain and Abel. You find Noah. Noah's in about um, chapter 5. And if you flip on through, you will um, come to uh, Abram. And Abram starts out around chapter 12, and he starts his whole journey and finally his name gets changed in chapter 17. And so from that point forward there's a lot about Abraham and then it continues starting in about chapter 24 it starts with Isaac who is Abraham's son so we have Abraham Isaac all right. You uh you also then continue in uh Genesis and you end up around you know, 25, 26, 27, right around in there. That's where um, Isaac has his son named Jacob, all right? And I told you that Jacob uh, wrestled with God, and his name was changed to Israel at that point. You find that in Genesis 32, okay? Now, those are just the high points. We're like crossing the water on stepping stones here. There's a ton of story in here that we are totally and completely skipping. We are skipping major people. Um, just, But the reason is because I'm trying to just give you the important points of the love affair between God and us. And so that's why I'm skipping certain people and picking up certain others. So then we get to around... Um, you know, Genesis 38, around in there, you start getting uh, the story of Joseph, okay? Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Israel, of uh, Jacob, and it tells all about how he ended up in Egypt, and actually, that's where uh, Genesis ends, is in Egypt, with the death of Joseph, all right? Joseph made them promise when he brought his family to Egypt, he made them promise that when they left Egypt, they would take his bones with them and take the, him back to the promised land. So then Exodus starts. And Exodus was what we, we covered last week. And that's 
where we're talking about Moses. The Israelites have now grown so strong that they threatened um, Pharaoh, or at least Pharaoh perceived them as a threat. And uh, the whole first part of Exodus is about Moses and the call of Moses. You find the the plagues in the, you know, six, seven, eight kind of range. And the last plague, um, the Passover, the, the plague of the, the death of the firstborn is in about Exodus 12. And then you, then they leave Egypt. The crossing of the Red Sea is in Exodus 13. Okay. From that point forward, that there is a whole lot of story about the wandering around in the desert. Remember, they made it to the promised land after two years, and only two of the 12 men that went in came back and said, yeah, let's go. Those two men were Caleb and Joshua. And uh, the other 10 men said, oh, yeah, it's a fantastic land, the best you've ever seen, better than we could ever imagine. But no way can we defeat the giants that are in that land. And so because those, because the Israelites kind of went with the 10 men and, and believed them and doubted God, God sent them back in the, in the wilderness to wander around for 40 years till those adults had died off. And he said, I'm going to, you know, because they didn't believe they don't get to go in the promised land and um, only their children and their descendants will go. The, the promise will still stay, but, but it'll be the children and their descendants. And Exodus ends with the death of Moses. Moses did not get to go into the promised land either, which is a whole story all by itself as to why that happened. It was, it was quite tragic, but, but um, he did not get to go in the promised land. Now, the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy all are related to the wandering around of the Israelites during that 40 years in the desert. Okay, Those books, in addition to parts of Exodus, have the whole, what's called the law. So those first five books of the Bible, they're called the Torah, T-O-R-A-H, and they are the central part of of the Jewish scripture, and they are the law. That's they're the books of the law, book, books of the law, and they are um, supposed to have been written by Moses because at one point in um, in the story, God tells Moses to write all this stuff down. So if he didn't write this version of it, he certainly wrote the original version that was then passed down orally and ultimately written down. So you do, in the Bible, just for your information, as you read your Bible, realize that the Bible very often retells the same story. Sometimes it retells it immediately, like you find in the creation story, where it tells you the story of creation and then it starts over and it sounds like a different story because what, what it does is it a lot of times will give you an overview and then come back and fill in a lot of detail. Um, but also you will find different scribes, different people, different authors in the Bible, in one book will write a story and then a different person will write the same story and we have both of their versions in the Bible. For example, you can find the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You can also find the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It didn't happen twice. <laughs> okay, just happened once. So um, it's it's... Good to know because it can be really confusing if you are under the mistaken impression that the Bible 
was chronological. That is definitely not chronological. This whole first part that we're studying is more or less chronological, but you have to look at it from a bird's eye view to get the chronology. So we get to Joshua. The book of Joshua is next. And where we left off last week was with the Israelites crossing the Jordan, and they crossed the Jordan on dry land. Remember, not only did the Red Sea part, but the Lord parted the Jordan River for them as well. So it was not a one-time one time thing. And, and they proceeded um, under the guidance of Joshua. He was one of the two men who um, had come back and said, yes, we can take the land. He was, he was Mo- Moses' assistant, kind of Moses' sidekick, had been for a long time. But he led the Israelites into the, into, into the promised land, and the Lord went before them the whole way. He did exactly what he promised. As long as the Israelites trusted God and did whatever he said, no matter how ridiculous it sounded, like march around the city seven times and blow your horns, you know, those kinds of things. As long as they did whatever it was God asked them to do, even if it was stand still, then walls fell, their enemies were thrown into confusion, the giants in the land, the warriors in the land fled before them, ten Israelites would rout a hundred Canaanites. It was just a miracle day by day by day. The Lord, even though he was no longer in front of them as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, because they're no longer wandering around in the desert, he his presence and protection is quite visible. And that whole story of Joshua tells about the conquering of the promised land. And that brings you to the next book. The next book is called Judges. And this was a kind of a special thing because back in the ancient cultures, all of these kingdoms had kings. But God said, I don't want you to have a king because I am your king. I don't want you to have a commander-in-chief. I am your commander-in-chief. Instead, he set up judges, all right, which was kind of patterned after how Moses had been um, for them. And what a judge was was a governor and a um, captain of the army under the direction of the Lord and and a judge in the sense of, of administering justice, kind of all rolled into one person. And they had a lot of judges. And some of these judges were good judges, and some of the, ju- the judges were bad judges. Um, so you'll, you would recognize some of the stories. This, one of the stories in Judges is the story of Samson and Delilah, for example. Um, another one of the stories in Judges is the story of Gideon, which is awesome. So the whole cha- this whole chapter of Judges just talks about each judge in order, how he came to be judge, whether he was a good one or a bad one. And, and there was even a woman judge named Deborah. But, so it was an equal opportunity position. And the, and the next book after Judges is Ruth, which is a book that occurs during the time of the Judges. She wasn't a judge. It just happened during that time, so it's grouped together in the Bible. Then you get to First and Second Samuel. Well, by this time, Israel has been in the promised land for a long time 
And just like I told you last week, the Lord had made it very clear to them. He said, one thing I want you to remember when you get to the promised land is do not worship their idols. Do not let the Canaanites continue to live in your territories. Do not make treaties with them. And he said the reason was because if they did do that, the idols would become a trap for the Israelites and would cause them to trade the living God for a dead one. So it's not that God wanted to be mean or harsh or anything. He was just being practical because the Israelites at this point have already demonstrated that they are a stubborn and stiff-necked people and they don't believe him most of the time, no matter how many miracles he does for them. And that's something important to realize that we, a lot of times in our modern minds, want God to do miracles for us. We want him to just, you know, God, just make it easy. Just talk to me, all right? You know, make it out loud so I can tell what to do. Tell me which way to go, what to do. Give me a sledgehammer moment, you know? Just make it make it obvious. What you see in the Bible is that it would not matter if he did that. We still would not believe him. If you don't believe him now, you will not believe him when you see a miracle. And that's kind of food for thought, all right? Um, it's, it's, and it certainly happened with the Israelites because what happened was they did not obey the Lord. They did not take him seriously, and they did not drive the Canaanites out. The Lord would drive them out, and the Israelites would, you know, let pockets of them stay or not finish the job, and, and they would intermarry, and they allowed the idol the physical idols and the places where the Canaanites worshipped idols to stay within the Israelite territory. And there were some (coughs) idols there that God particularly (coughs) hated, and you're going to understand why when I tell you about these idols. One that's not on your your sheet was Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. Molech was worshipped with child sacrifice. Baal, B-A-A-L, he's on your sheet. The, the actual name Baal means Lord, Husband, Owner. Not good, right? He's the God, he was a God of fertility. He was considered the life giver. And his worship involved male and female prostitution, including sometimes child sacrifice. You can see that worshiping this idol would be anathema to God. If there ever was something called an abomination, this is what it would be. Because this idol was usurping God's place as husband, as life giver. Astareth was Baal's consort, his wife. She also was considered a goddess of fertility and a giver of life and death, along with Baal. So she was the female version of usurping God's place. Now, her idols were typically made out of clay, and they emphasized, because she was a fertility goddess, they, would, they emphasized the female genitals, all right? We actually, because they were made of clay, we actually have 
her idols all over in in our museums in the world today. You will you would recognize Ashtoreth by her other names. Her Greek name is Aphrodite, and her Roman name is Venus. And God hated this idol. And Asherah, you will see referred to all over the Old Testament. The Israelites loved these three idols. They loved worshiping these three idols. Asherah was a mother goddess. She was the mother of Baal and, you know, she was mother of 70 gods, 70 idols. She was the goddess of childbirth. Now, her idols were made of wood, so they have not survived. We have a lot written about her, though. Her, her idols were called Asherah poles. We don't know exactly what they looked like, but we know they were somehow. I, I'm kind of visualizing a totem pole kind of a thing because they were referred to as poles and they were made out of wood. And the, the worship location um, was always on a high place. And it was associated with green or spreading trees. So it got so bad that, that the Bible says the Israelites built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim under every green tree. That's how widespread this was. Now, they also worshiped God in the tabernacle and with the sacrifice, not in the tabernacle, but with the sacrifices, they, the, the priests, the Levites, Okay, still did the whole ritual with the Lord and they did the daily sacrifices and everything they were supposed to do. They had their festivals, but they also worshipped these idols. So you would have in one household, like, for example, Venus, the, the Astoreth goddess, her idol of clay was typically kept in the home and not in a sanctuary, not on a high hill or something like the Asherim were. So they had these idols in their homes. They had them on every hill. They had them under every tree. Whereas the Lord God was worshipped in one place, and that was in the tabernacle. God hated the, the, what, these, what these idols represented, but he also hated the physical worship of those idols. God hates that we would prostitute ourselves. It devalues both people involved, all of the people involved. And these idols were worshipped with prostitution, lascivious rituals. <clears throat> but God, even more than that, hated the spiritual prostitution because this was his chosen bride, the nation of Israel, rejecting him and choosing to prostitute herself with these idols. And that spiritual prostitution not only devalued Israel, it was Israel's devaluation of God. It was saying, God, you are worthless. You are worth no more to me than a lump of clay or a piece of wood that I can make an idol out of myself that I know cannot hear or see or help me in any way. So that brings us up to First and Second Samuel. Samuel was the very last judge of Israel. The reason that Samuel was the last judge was because the Israelites finally decided they had to have a king. They were tired of this whole judge thing. They wanted to be like all the other kingdoms around them. 
they wanted a king. They had wanted a king a long time, and God kept saying, no, you really don't. Trust me on this one. You really don't want a king. (laughs) But they wouldn't listen to God, and they insisted on on a king. So the last judge, Samuel, anointed Saul, who was handpicked by God as the first king of Israel. The problem is that Saul, even though he clearly had the hand of the Lord on him, made some really bad choices, bad choices. And in fact, he also did not fully trust the Lord. And there is a story that you all know in which Saul went to war against the Philistines and there was no way that he could beat the Philistines and the Philistines weren't real sure they were going to beat the Israelites. So they all agreed instead of, instead of everybody killing each other, that they would just send their best warriors out and let it be a mano a mano, um, hand to hand battle one-on-one and whoever won, that would be the winner. Well, the Philistines sent a giant Goliath and the Israelites had nobody nobody good enough, big enough, strong enough, brave enough to attack Goliath and win. And of course, you know the story, little shepherd boy David came and he said, what are y'all doing out here staring at each other? And they explained the situation to him and he said, well, God's on our side. God will let whoever win. So they agreed to let David, David said, I'll go do it. They said, well, we're going to get slaughtered anyway. Might as well let him. So they tried to put armor, Saul's armor, King Saul's armor on David. But David was such a little twerp, it all drug on the ground and he couldn't even lift the sword. So they took it all off of him and David went out and he was a shepherd boy. So he was accustomed to using his slingshot to kill wolves and lions and things like that. So he, he went out and he picked up five stones and put them in his pocket. You know why he picked up five stones? It's not because he didn't trust God on the first shot. It's because Goliath had four brothers. He did. And um, so, so David picked up the, of course, you know the story, picked up the stones. He got his one shot off and it struck Goliath right in the only spot in his armor that it could have struck and killed him, which was right in the, in the forehead. And um, Goliath fell over dead. Well, that totally showed King Saul up, right? King Saul had egg on his face. And, and people were just loving David because not only was he a handsome and humble kid, but he also was an extremely talented musician. And so Saul had David come to court to play music for him because Saul suffered from some kind of I would say a mental insanity of some sort. He would have actually insane spells. And David's music would soothe him. And um, as it turned out, David grew just like Jesus did in grace and truth, you know. And David became a, a warrior and he was a leader of men. And pretty soon people were saying, you know, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. You know, they were starting to make up songs about how David was much better than Saul. This was not cool because Saul was all about Saul. Saul wanted all the glory for himself. 
And after a while, <laughs> David had to flee court because Saul tried to kill him. And there ensued a horrible period in David's life where Saul just chased David around the countryside trying to kill him. And several times, at least twice, David was in a position to be able to kill Saul. And David spared Saul's life. And still Saul tried to kill him. Ultimately, Saul actually went he became increasingly unhappy. I won't say he went crazy, but he got worse and worse as, as he got older. And, and he became, fear, he was fearful, he was unhappy, and he eventually committed suicide. And that brings us up to First Chronicles. After Saul's death, God sought out a man after his own heart to make king. And the person that he chose was David. And David was crowned king of Israel. In addition to being a great warrior, he was a great musician and singer. And he wrote most of the Psalms. That whole section in the Bible is, was written by him. And, and he, in those Psalms, he poured his heart out to God. And you can see, if you read the Psalms, that David trusted God completely. If ever there was a person who trusted God, it was David. But even David fell into sin. Even this man who, was a, who, who, who God had handpicked because he had a heart so tuned to God, David committed adultery. And when the girl got pregnant, David had her husband killed to cover up the fact that he had gotten this woman pregnant because David would then just marry her right away and say, oh, early baby. <laughs> you know? It didn't really work out. And, um, and after that incident, uh, the, the husband actually was killed. David did take the woman to wife, but, but then David endured the death of that child. That infant died. Um, and that was a consequence of the sin. The Lord told him it was a consequence of the sin. He told him through the prophet Nathan. And this is something to also, remember I told you last week that the Lord always announces his intentions. He always tells you what's happening in advance. He tells you where we're going, what your choices are. No surprises, all right? You should always know where you stand with God. Nathan was the prophet that God sent to David. As we look through today, all of the kings that we're going to talk about had prophets sent to them by God to tell them, you're doing right, you're doing wrong, here's what God wants you to do, yes, no. And even though David had committed this terrible <coughs> sin, of double sin of adultery and murder, God forgave him. There is, there is no sin that God will not forgive. It wasn't accidental adultery. It wasn't accidental manslaughter. It was premeditated murder. And God still forgave David. And he will forgive you of no matter how dark your hurt is. God hasn't changed, and his love hasn't changed. The choice, though, was David's. 
David could have chosen to let Satan bring him down over this sin. David could have chosen guilt. David could have chosen to just shut down, but he didn't. David accepted the Lord's forgiveness. See, it's not enough just for the Lord to forgive us. We have to accept the forgiveness. So David picked up and went on to become the greatest king Israel had ever had. He loved God exactly the way God wanted to be loved. So if you want to know what kind of relationship God wants with you, read the Psalms. That's it. That's the kind of relationship. He wants an honest relationship. He wants a relationship in which we pour our hearts out to him, where we ponder his words, where we think about his actions. David delighted in God's creation. He appreciated God's blessings. He just took a moment to appreciate God's blessings. And he humbled himself before God and asked for discipline and correction. David would say, I know I'm not perfect. Show me where I'm missing the boat. Show me where I need to change. And God loved the way David loved him. So towards the end of David's life, David became distressed that he was living in a really fancy palace and God was still living in a tabernacle. So David made up his mind to build God a a permanent grand temple. And they began to gather the finest materials from all over the, the realm. And a second time, God sent the prophet Nathan to David with a message. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Starting in verse 5. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. This is where, this is what the Lord told the prophet Nathan to say to David. Y'all there? More or less? Okay. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one, and that, and so he's talking about one person that he's going to raise up. He is the one who will build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That last bit should be written in stone because God saw it that significantly. This was a solemn promise that God said, David, your house will live forever. I will establish your house forever. So what ended up happening is, is David said, okay, and he left all those materials that he had bought and the plans he had made for the temple, he just stopped. And he gave those over to his son Solomon, who he made king before he died. That happened in Second Chronicles. And David's son Solomon, who was a man of peace and wisdom, built the temple. And that brings us to the last two-thirds of Second Chronicles. And the books of of First and Second Kings. Okay, these books, First and Second Kings, and the last bit of Chronicles, tell the story of the Israelites and all the kings that came after David and Solomon. The people did not walk with God, so they <laughs> fell into sin, as we've seen. They proved what we learned in one of our earlier lessons, and that is, if you walk with your face to God. God will make you blameless. That's all it takes is walking with your face to God. They did not walk with their face to God. They turned away from God. How could they be blameless then? They were sitting ducks for Satan at that point. And it is at that point in Israel's history that the wheels start to fall off the wagon. Solomon, towards the end of his life, became spiritually corrupt and led the Israelites into the worship of Ashtoreth and Molech and all those other idols that we talked about. So quickly, after David, it stopped. And God is now faced with a terrible choice. What's he going to do? The king that he has established, that he has promised is going li- to have an unending line, is leading the people into idol worship. So God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take 10 of the tribes, all but one of the tribes. I'm going to take 10 tribes, and I'm going to give them to somebody else. I'm going to start over with a different king. I'm going to leave one tribe with Solomon because I promised David that he would always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. If you do the math, that's only 11 tribes, right? The 12th tribe was the Levites, and they were priests, and they did not have land. All right, they were to live off the tithes of the people. So in dividing up the land, you know, when you're determining kingship, that the ten, ten northern tribes God took and gave to Jeroboam. And you don't have to write these names. Um, what you can do is turn to the, the handout that's titled Kings of Israel and Judah. I'm going to kind of tell you some stories off of that. So he took the ten northern tribes and gave them to Jeroboam, and and those tribes took the name Israel, all right? The one tribe left was the tribe at Jerusalem 
um, with Solomon, and that tribe is Judah, the tribe of Judah, stayed with Solomon. And of course, then the priests continued to practice in the in the temple at, at Jerusalem. Judah is sometimes called the southern kingdom because they were geographically located in the south. Israel is called the northern kingdom. Israel is much larger. It's the ten tribes. I remember it by the capital letters. Okay, if you if you stack the capital letters and I points up with the dot, okay, or the lowercase letters, the I points up with the dot and the J goes underneath. It helps me to remember Judah was south and Israel was north so that you can kind of keep them tra- track in your head. So God promised Jeroboam, you'll see now on this handout, the way I've laid it out, you've got the kings of Israel on the left. The approximate, I tried to put kind of every 50 years what year it was, how many years they reigned. And then on the right, you've got the kings of Judah, which is the tribe in the south, and the number of years they reigned. Red means that king did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was not faithful to the Lord. Blue means that king did good and did worship the Lord and did lead the people correctly. And you can see in green the names of the prophets that were sent to help by God specifically to help that king. And you can see how faithful God was about sending prophets to help the king. So I thought that Jeroboam just got ten tribes miraculously dropped in his lap by God. How come his how come his name is in red? What's with that noise? He's supposed to be the one saving the people from the evil of Solomon, right? He's supposed to be leading the people correctly. You know what happened? Jeroboam got nervous that if he let the people go to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, they'd switch their allegiance back to Solomon. So he made two golden calves and set them up in different parts of the country and instituted festivals and made sacrifices to them and told the people to worship the golden calves instead. Complete opposite of what the Lord was trying to do. And God, at that point, took immediate action. Let's look at 1 Kings 13. Kings is before Chronicles, so if you've, if you've gone to Chronicles, go back. We're kind of backing up to 1 Kings to read a particular version of the story. 1 Kings 13. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. And he cried out against the altar. This is an idol. This is not an altar of the Lord. This is one of those golden calf altars that Jeroboam is standing by. And the man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. And that same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up, So he could not pull it back. 
and also the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Oh, please intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored as it was before. Now skip forward to verse 33 and 34. They're the very end of chapter 13. Jeroboam's hand has been miraculously withered and miraculously healed, right? All in in one instance. But even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. And once more, appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places, as opposed to the way the Lord does it, where he has particular Levites, you know. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. Now skip forward in chapter 14 to verse 14. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river. They're talking about the Euphrates River there. Because they provoke the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. So not a very good beginning. Let's just kind of look down the king of Israel side of the page and talk about it for a moment. Jeroboam was succeeded by his son Nadab. His son only only reigned two years before he was assassinated by Basha. Basha was so bad that the Lord sent the prophet Jehu to tell him, the Lord is going to wipe you and your descendants off the face of this earth. Just like he had said about Jeroboam. Basha was succeeded by Elah, who was assassinated (laughs) by a guy named Zimri, who proceeded to wipe out Basha's family in accordance with the prophecy. Not because he was doing the Lord's will, but just because he was killing all the threats to him, to himself. Well, once Zimri assassinated all of Basha's family, the whole army of Israel revolted against him, and he ended up committing suicide himself. Then two of the army commanders claimed the throne simultaneously, and the one named Omri won out. Omri, as you can see by the red, did evil in the sight of the Lord. His son, Ahab, was married to Jezebel. These are two of the most wicked kings and queens ever. He did, the Bible says, he did more evil than any of those before him. However, the Lord was very cognizant of of the fact that Ahab represented the Lord to all those Canaanite nations around them, all right, those people are on the outside looking in. They don't understand that idol worship is a really bad thing, you know. They just know that the Israelites miraculously came into the into the land and that the Lord's been winning battles for them, okay. So at one point, one of these people, the Arameans, attacked Ahab. 
And the Arameans actually thought Israel won their wars because they worshiped the Lord God. And because the Arameans thought that, even though Ahab was nasty, terrible, the Lord went ahead and let Ahab win the battle just to prove to the Arameans that the Lord was God. The prophets Elijah and Micah were sent to Ahab. And Ahab completely ignored them. You asked me about Elijah and Jezebel um, a week last week, I think, Troy. And one of the very best showdowns in the Bible occurs right here in their history with Elijah. Elijah's on the run. The Lord has made a curse on Ahab and said, okay, there will be no rain, Ahab, except when Elijah says it can rain. <laughs> Needless to say, Ahab and Jezebel did not like Elijah. So Elijah's been on the run. He's been hiding in ravines, and the Lord's been miraculously taking care of him. And um, there comes a point at which Elijah comes, is pretty much forced out of hiding and says, all right, I tell you what. You've got 400 prophets of Baal on your payroll, Ahab and Jezebel. And she had equal numbers of prophets for, for the goddesses. And let's just do a showdown. I will show you once and for all, for the benefit of the people who have completely forgotten the Lord our God, I'll show you who's God. God will show you who's God. So let's have a duel. So they had an altar duel. And he said, okay. We'll go up on Mount Carmel, and I'll let you guys go first. All 400 prophets, you can go first. You build an altar to Baal and make a sacrifice. There's only one deal. You can't light the fire. Whosoever's God is God enough to light the fire, that's who's God. For real. So, the prophets of Baal, they build their offer altar they sacrifice the animal they put him up there and they stand back and they say oh Baal please strike the altar with fire nothing happens they do this all morning long morning till noon at noon Joshua starts I mean Joshua Elijah starts making fun of him he says maybe you need to holler louder maybe he's asleep Maybe he's traveling. You think he's still there? So the prophets of Baal start, you know, and the, the king's watching all this. The prophets of Baal start dancing around. They start slashing themselves. They're going crazy. Nothing. So the time of day comes at dusk, which is when Israel makes their sacrifices to the Lord. And Elijah goes and he picks up 12 stones one for each tribe, and he builds an altar to the Lord. They sacrifice the bull on the altar. Then Elijah digs a ditch around the altar. And he has them pour water all over the animal. So much water, the wood is soaked, the animal is soaked, the water runs down and fills up the ditch all around the altar. And then Elijah says, this day you will see who the Lord is. The Lord will like this so that you, the people who are watching this, will know 
that he is the Lord. And at that moment, fire came from heaven, consumed the animal, the wood, the altar, and all of the water in the ditch. And Elijah said, people, kill the prophets of Baal, which they did. You would think that would make an impression on Ahab and Jezebel, but it didn't. When Ahab died, a death that was prophesied by Elijah, his son Ahaziah became king in his stead. Ahaziah was also evil, and he died without a son. Joram became king after Ahaziah. And even though he was evil, the Lord continued to give Israel miraculous success whenever they fought, fought the Arameans, because the Arameans thought Israel worshipped God. He was followed by Jehu, who killed Joram, killed Jezebel, killed all of Ahab's family in accordance with prophecy, which said that God told Ahab he was going to wipe him off the face of the earth. Um, and he did that. Jehu, which is not to be confused with the prophet Jehu we talked about earlier, different people. This Jehu completely cleansed the land of idols, all right? And then as soon as he did it, he turned right around and fell into idol worship himself. You know, you have to think, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? What are we thinking? You know? So, because of this, the Lord told him that his descendants would only reign until the fourth generation. So, let's see if that worked. Did that happen? His son, Jehoahaz, did evil. So, the Lord let the Arameans kind of win out over them for a while. And then, finally, the Lord delivered Israel from the Arameans when Jehoahaz repented. But as soon as they repented, they went right back to the idol worship. It's like they'd come up, they'd surface, the Lord would save them, and as soon as things got comfortable, they'd go right back into idol worship. He had a son, Jehoash, who was constantly at war. But because he showed tenderness and concern for the prophet Elisha when he was dying, the Lord honored him in battle and let him and let him regain some of the territory that had been lost. And now we should be to generation four, Jeroboam, his son. The Bible says, the Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had said he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them from their attackers by the hand of Jeroboam. You can see the prophet Amos is the, is the prophet that was sent to Jeroboam. Amos is a book in the Bible. All right? A lot of these prophets, you'll recognize their names as books of the Bible. So you can go actually see that book and see what was said to that particular king. Then the fifth generation, Zechariah, son of Jeroboam. He was assassinated. Look how long he reigned. Six months. Just like the Lord said, he was only going to allow that generation to, to reign for four years. I mean, for four generations. He was followed by Menahem. Um, and Menahem attacked the Assyrians. There was, let me show you on the map what's going on here. Remember our fertile crescent? 
there were really only three world powers in this region at that time. One of them was Egypt, obviously, right? Another one was Assyria, which is this whole area in the upper part of the crescent. Assyria fought with Egypt constantly. So you got armies marching right back and forth, right along this corridor the whole time. Okay. But they're more, they're more focused on each other than they are on Judah. But every once in a while they swipe Judah, I mean Israel, you know, and Judah and, and plunder them or attack them or whatever. This is, this is one of those times. The other world power during this time, or the world power that's arising during this time is, it's over in Babylon, which is this, is this whole area over here, although we associate Babylon with a city. But pretty much, because they were so far away, they were generally fighting with the Assyrians. You know, they had to have won over the Assyrians in order to get over here to Egypt. So, so for the most part in the Bible, you'll see the Israelites worrying about Egypt, Assyria, and then some of the small kingdoms around them. So Menahem was attacked by the Assyrians, but he was able to buy them off by paying, paying a price. His son was assassinated after two years, and the guy who assassinated him was Pekah. He was attacked by the Assyrians too, but this time the Assyrians carried a bunch of people off into captivity. Pekah was assassinated by a guy named Hosea, and Hosea was really dumb. He rebelled against the Assyrians. He didn't buy them off. He, he stopped paying the tribute to them. He rebelled against them, and he tried to make an alliance with Egypt and get Egypt to help him fight the Assyrians. So the Assyrians, who were much more powerful than either one of them at the time, invaded Israel and deported all the remaining Israelites. And that was the end of the, the um, kingdom of Israel, as we know it and as it is called. Those people were carried off as, as slaves into captivity. So back up and see what happened to Judah. If you notice, in Israel, we didn't hit one blue name there, did we? There was not one single king, except for momentarily, who believed the Lord, who trusted the Lord, who followed the Lord, or, and, or who led the, the people the way the Lord had intended. So what happened to that one tribe of Judah? Well, it started out with the son of Solomon. His name was Rehoboam. And he was immediately attacked by Egypt. But he humbled himself before the Lord. So the Lord spared him from destruction. And the Lord said he spared him because there was some good in Judah. So instead of actually destroying Judah at that point, the Egyptians just carried off all the gold and silver they could find. The next guy, Abijah, you'll see his name is kind of red and blue. Because he really wasn't fully devoted to the Lord. He did better than Jeroboam. So the Lord allowed him to prevail in battle whenever he fought those ten tribes in the north, whenever he fought Israel. But his son, Asa, was fully devoted to the Lord. He expelled all the male prostitutes, destroyed all the idols. He was successful in war. He was a good guy. And so was his son, Jehoshaphat. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. And he went so far as to remove all the high places where they worshipped idols. He removed all the Asherah poles. 
And because of that, the Lord made him very successful in battle. And that made the fear of the Lord fall on all those little kingdoms that surrounded him. So he lived in peace. They were afraid to make war on him. His son, Jehoram, was bad. And his son, Ahaziah, was bad. And he happened to be killed when, when um, the, ki- the king of Israel was killed by Jehu. And after Ahaziah was killed, his mother was power hungry. And she killed off all her grandchildren so she could be queen. But Ahaziah's sister quickly hid the baby. And she hid him for seven years until one of the priests, and back then priests were um, often warriors, okay? And this priest was was a a warrior as well. He led a military coup and incited the people to smash their idols and come back to the Lord. And Joash became king at the age of seven. And he was under the direction of this priest, and the priest taught him how to be faithful to the Lord. And he did, and his heart was for the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord, but he failed to make the people destroy all the idols. And therefore, the people kept worshiping idols in addition to the Lord. He eventually was assassinated, and his son ascended to the throne, executed the guys who assassinated his dad, and he too had a heart for the Lord. He was good. He loved the Lord. He tried to follow the Lord, but just like his dad, Amaziah failed to destroy the the idols. So the people kept worshiping idols. He, Amaziah was eventually captured by the king of Israel, but it turned out he ended up outliving that guy, the guy that captured him, and so he ended up being okay. Azariah, his son, is also called Uzziah in the in the um, Bible, became king at the age of sixteen. Same story. He did right, but he didn't did not destroy the idols or the high places. His son Jotham, same thing. Loved the Lord, did what was right, did not destroy the high places or the idol worship. So the people, as you can see, are kind of going along in an unbroken line of idol worship. All right? The kings have heart for the Lord, but they're not making the people destroy the idols. So the Lord, at this point, sent the Arameans and the Israelites to attack Judah. The next son, Ahaz, he was, he was the worst they ever had in Judah. He even sacrificed his own son to an idol. He burned incense. He set up the high places. He burned incense under all the trees. He, he paid the Assyrians to come defend him against the Arameans and Israel. Now, this is not probably real smart to invite the Assyrians into your land. All right. But he did. His son, Hezekiah, was the first one who did everything right. He loved the Lord and he smashed all the Asherah poles. He smashed all the idols to Baal. He he removed all the high places and he trusted in the Lord. And therefore the Lord made him successful in whatever he undertook, including when he refused to serve the Assyrians. And look at the contrast. If you look over in in the column about the kings of Israel, look at Hosea, that last guy. On page 3, Hosea rebelled against the Assyrians, tried to make an alliance with Egypt. So what happened? The Assyrians deported everybody. 
same time frame, Hezekiah refuses to submit to the Assyrians, but the Lord defended him because he trusted the Lord. He believed the Lord and the Lord had promised that he would defend them if all they would do was believe him. And the Lord miraculously delivered Judah from the Assyrians when they attacked. But Hezekiah made a really big mistake that later came back to bite Judah. And that is when the, when the um, ambassadors from Babylon came, which at this point, they, Babylon was ascending in power at this point. Assyria is weakening. Babylon is ascending in power. We had some Babylonian ambassadors came to visit Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you get the you get the impression that he's like a hearty, hail fellow, well met. He's friends with everybody. He loves everybody. He's having a good old time. He thinks these guys are his buddies. He shows them every treasury he has. He shows them all the gold in his palaces. He shows them all the gold in the temple. And the prophet Isaiah, after the ambassadors left, the prophet Isaiah says, "What did you show them?" And Hezekiah says, oh, I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, please tell me you didn't show them everything. And Hezekiah had showed them everything. So at that point, the seed was planted, and Babylon knows there's riches in Judah. His son, Manasseh, rebuilt the high places, set up the altars to Baal, set up Asherah poles. He worshipped the starry hosts. He He even built altars to idols in the temple of the Lord. He's blue and red on purpose. He even sacrificed his own son to an idol. It says about him, the Bible says, the streets of Jerusalem were filled with innocent blood. And ultimately, the Lord let him fall to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians put a hook through his nose and led him to Babylon. And at that point, Manasseh humbled himself before the Lord. And the Lord had pity on him. This is a child murderer. Remember we had that discussion before about child molesters? This guy didn't just molest him. He killed him. He sacrificed him. The streets ran with innocent blood. And he worshipped idols. He set up all all the idols that had been torn down. He set all back up again. But when he humbled himself before the Lord, the Lord had pity on him. You are never... Too far gone for the Lord. You're never too far gone for the Lord. The Lord allowed him to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And when he returned, he removed all the idols and restored the altar of the Lord. His son, Ammon, was assassinated by his officials. But the people revolted at that, killed the assassins, and made Ammon's son, Joash, king. Josiah, um, and that's who that is, is his son is Josiah, um, is where we'll stop. But I want you to remember that we read a prophecy. Remember the prophecy about Jeroboam when he stuck his hand out and it shriveled? That prophecy said there will be a king in Judah named Josiah who will do right and who will sacrifice the idol priests on these altars. And that's where we're stopping, is at the beginning of the reign of Josiah.